Turning with me to Matthew chapter 19, where we are not only in the middle of our series through the book of Matthew, but taking a little bit of extra time as we deliberate over this passage in Matthew 19, a very sensitive and delicate passage that uh, I trust that you understand that it is with great sensitivity that I approach this difficulty and hope that the Spirit of God will communicate his will to us. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 through verse 12 as we now consider this once again in this little mini-series of three messages within uh, this particular passage. Now hear the Word of God. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and a great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and he said to them, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery, And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with the wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, All cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. There are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made, made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Our Father in heaven, we ask that your Spirit would be poured out upon the Word. For we know that it is spiritually discerned and appraised, and we cannot in our minds or in our flesh of themselves understand it. And so we ask that you would open up those minds and give us your grace to discern what your will is and what your heart is and what your Spirit is and what your mind is. And we pray that you would square us up with all of that this morning from the Word as your Spirit breathes out and empowers the preaching. We pray that our hearts would be ready and tender to receive whatsoever things you would desire of us. So give us ears to hear and and eyes to see and hearts to receive the good things of God. And may we go and be doers of the Word and not hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I did supply a supplement if you got it. We'll refer probably to this a little bit. It's got the parallel passage from Mark on it, so hopefully I can make it through the message. I had a bit of that cold that was going around, and I'm on the tail end of that, and the really more of the, the grovel of the... I'm, I'm a bass this morning. I'm a bass. But I'm hoping I can just maintain the voice through the the message that is my hope and prayer. 
God does not intend us to, to merely have abrupt commands and precepts in His Word. That's not, He's given us some very clear black and white precepts and commands, but the Bible itself recognizes that there are difficulties to understand and some teachings that will simply be hard to receive. But it is in the process of working through those difficulties that leads us to an understanding that shapes our thinking so that we can understand the mind and the will of God. That's what I'm hoping to accomplish and the series that we're in right now, this little mini-series, is to shape our thinking into the form and the pattern of the gospel after God's own heart. It's in this process that then leads us to deep convictions on matters, and the American church is in great need of a deep conviction on this matter of divorce and remarriage. Amen? So as we work through this passage on divorce and remarriage, let us then study this passage, engaging our mind to shape your thinking so that you know the heart of our Savior and our God on this matter. Last week we looked at the beginning portion of this passage in Matthew 19. This passage is broken up somewhat in three questions, and we're addressing each one of those questions in each one of the three series or messages. And last Lord's Day we looked at the question that started the conversation that when the Pharisees came, they asked Jesus about the lawfulness of divorce. We covered verses 3 through 6 last time. As a recap, I want to go back over a bit of that so we can layer upon this message in somewhat of a layering effect of scales or shingles so that this is coming together for us. There were two schools of thought in the Pharisees as they came to Jesus One, you have the school of Shammai who believed that divorce was allowed only for the cause of unchastity of the wife. You had another school, the Hillel school, which was much broader in the reasons allowing for divorce for such things as just ruining a dish. So the question they brought to Jesus was really one to somewhat trip him up in the argument itself and what they were deliberating, where they had brought contention, but they were presenting an awkward question with a a loaded question with some context to it. And what the question they were asking him was directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where Moses allowed for the divorce for the cause of some uncleanness in the spouse. And they were deliberating over a particular technicality in Deuteronomy 24. And the term in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, that they were deliberating over is the word uncleanness. What clarifies uncleanness? The Shammai school would say unchastity was the uncleanness, and the Hillel school said it was much broader than unchastity, included a host of other reasons. So as Jesus took up the question that they asked him, expecting him to be addressing Deuteronomy 24.1, is where the Pharisees placed their focus of their argument, Jesus actually started back in Genesis. And he quotes from two different verses or passages in Genesis, one from Genesis 1.27, where the Scripture says that God created male and female in His image. 
And the second passage, which he couples right to it, was Genesis 2.24, where he says that for this cause a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Jesus adds fresh application to those old principles right from creation when he says what God has joined together, and the word there that we looked at, cemented together, glued together, what God has cemented together, let no man separate. Now at that point, Jesus had answered the Pharisees' question on the lawfulness of divorce. His answer was simple. It's simply not lawful to divorce. The Lord was pretty clear and unflinching in his response. And what he was doing is he was showing the mind of God on this matter. The mind of God, the Spirit of God, which he had established from the very beginning, from creation, which still is upheld to this day, and what God has cemented together, let not man separate. Now that answer did not only didn't satisfy the Pharisees, it didn't even satisfy Jesus' own disciples. We can see that by their answers. The Pharisees then follow up with the question of verse 7, again, going back to Deuteronomy 24. They want the argument to be centered there. And they say, then why then Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Again, they're focusing on Deuteronomy 24.1. And the disciples later in verse 10 then say, if such is the case with a man with his wife, it's just better not to marry. Now they ask a question, we find that from the Mark's passage in Mark 10. So the position that Jesus took, and which was true from the beginning, which is true even up to this day, was that marriage is for life and it's not lawful to divorce. And such a high position and such a narrow view was this, that even in Jesus' day, both the Pharisees and his own disciples thought that this was extreme, this was idealistic, and perhaps not even impossible to maintain. And last week we covered this initial question. That's what started this whole conversation. Today, I want to pick up with that sensitive topic once again, focusing on verses 7 through 9. This is that follow-up. The follow-up question, you can see that the Pharisees weren't satisfied with Jesus' answer. So verse 7, they said, then why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? The question that the Pharisees followed up with shows that in their minds, they did not support, nor did they agree, in Jesus' answer. They are asking the question because his answer did not satisfy them. But his answer was that which was the spirit and the mind of God himself. It is clear that he wasn't siding with any of them, including the school of Shammai, because they all rejected his answer. So I want to look first of all, and spend a little bit in most of our time, looking at this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. 
I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy 24. So we're going to be a little technical this morning, and I hope that you can track with me and think through these things at a deep level, because this is where conviction is going to emerge. The reference of what the Pharisees are considering is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, which we'll look at in a few minutes. But there is a difference in the Pharisees and Jesus regarding what Moses did in that passage. The two words that I want to draw attention to, and if you have this little supplement I gave to you, I kind of underlined, italicized, and bolded the difference there. The two words I want to draw attention to are the word permitted and the word commanded. If you look in Matthew's gospel where we are, he says in verse 8 or verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And in verse 8, Jesus then answers Moses because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. But if you look over in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 10, he answered the question when they first came to him. He says, what did Moses command you? And this is Jesus talking at this point. He uses the term command. And then they, the Pharisees, say Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and dismiss her. If you're tracking along with, with that in these two passages, there ought to be apparent two apparent discrepancies between these two passages. One is the order in which the questions come and the way that Jesus handles them. And the second one concerns Matthew's gospel, where the Pharisees use the term command and Jesus uses the term permit. And in Mark's gospel, where Jesus uses the term command, and the Pharisees use the term permit. So anyone that's giving serious consideration to this would like to have these things harmonized, yeah? Well, I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but I do want to show a very strong possibility for this, one that I would hold to myself. In Mark's gospel, Jesus didn't go to Genesis until after he addressed Moses' statement in Deuteronomy 24. Whereas in Matthew, Jesus went first to Genesis, and he answered the Pharisees from Genesis. And then he follows up regarding the Deuteronomy 24 from Moses. Now, when you consider the narrative in both of the Gospels, knowing that Matthew would often arrange his material in a theological order to make a point, Mark arranged the material more in a chronological order, the order in which the events actually happened. And the narrative, then, from these two passages could have very well gone like this. Taking it from Mark first... Pharisees come to him and ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Then Jesus would have answered, what did Moses command? 
He's asking them. He's turning the back around. And the Pharisees would then say, well, Moses permitted. And taking it from Matthew, Jesus then would say, let me explain why he did that. In Genesis, however, from the beginning, it was not so. So then the Pharisees would turn around and ask, well, then why then did Moses command it? And then Jesus would answer, Moses permitted divorce, but I'll tell you again what I told you before, it was for the hardness of hearts, whoever divorces. I think that's a real possibility of how that narrative unfolded. As Mark and Matthew give us two different perspectives, But the question is, is Jesus affirming that Moses commanded divorce in some cases, or is Jesus saying that Moses permitted divorce in some cases? That's the question that they were wrestling with. This is where we need to go back to Deuteronomy 24, which is actually on the back of this, or you can take your Bibles and go directly to Deuteronomy 24, because we're going to now wrestle through some of what they were wrestling through in Jesus' day to bring us into the context to help us to understand a little bit more what was going on. Now, understand that in the New Testament times, this passage of Deuteronomy 24 was highly debated. Understand, too, today, it is still highly debated. But this debate around this passage in New Testament times was part of the reason why the Pharisees were bringing the awkward question to Jesus in order to trip him up. Use the opportunity, actually, to clarify something that we all need to have clarified regarding divorce and marriage. And still, this passage leaves us today with questions whose answers are hard to be dogmatic about. Let's look at verse 20, chapter 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found some uncleanness in her. There was the word they were debating over. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house when she is departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. That is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is the passage they were bringing forth to Jesus. The interesting thing is in verse 1, not only were they debating around the two schools of what the word uncleanness would specifically be defined as, but they were also debating around an imperative or an indicative that could possibly be in that verse 1. He commands her to write a certificate of divorce if uncleanness is found in her. The word writes along with puts, along with sins. In the last portion of verse 1, The King James actually translates it as an imperative, a command. And it translates it this way. If he finds some uncleanness in her, then let him 
write her a bill of divorcement as a command and give it into her hand and send her out of his house. King James translates those Hebrew phrases, verbs, as commands, imperatives. All other modern translations or versions translate the same Hebrew verbals as indicatives or statements. So is it a command or is it a statement? That's the question. And that's the question being argued even in Jesus' day among the Pharisees. And here's the kicker. In Hebrew, those verbs are in the perfect tense, which can be used as an imperative, but is often not used that way. There's some ambiguity here, even regarding the grammar. So the King James and the modern versions both are correct in the way that they translate verse 1. But notice in verse 2, if you have the King James Version, the same form of the verb is used in that verse, but there it's not an imperative. It is translated as an indicative or a simple statement. That tells me that the King James translators knew that this verb could go either way. Because in verse 1, they translated that form as an imperative, verse 2 as an indicative. And why are we giving so much attention to these little technical details? Because we're wondering if Moses commanded or permitted divorce. And that's an important point. Someone says, let's look back at the verbs in Deuteronomy 24 and let's be done with it. And the answer is you can't tell on the basis of the verbs alone. You can't be dogmatic merely based on the grammar And that's a controversial point, and in part, it's why the Pharisees were bringing this up to Jesus. And why we see the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees over these very terms in Matthew and Mark being brought forward to our attention. That's why the Spirit wants us to wrestle through this a little bit. Now, the key verse that the Pharisees were bringing forth and arguing about was Deuteronomy 24.1. And in Deuteronomy 24.1, they argued over what the uncleanness aspect was, and they were arguing over the, 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 the tense of the perfect of the verbs, command or permit. And we can't be dogmatic necessarily here regarding just those points, but we can be dogmatic about this. And this is the important part. The bottom line of that passage is not in verse 1. The bottom line of the passage is not in verse 1 through 3. This is one of those classic hermeneutic smoke screens that Satan often likes to do, where the argument takes place on some subordinate passage in the Scriptures when the main point is missed. And then so it skews the entire meaning of what the Spirit intends for us to receive in the passage. Don't be taken here along with the Pharisees. 
The real teaching in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, is in verse 4. It's the then statement. Verse 4 is the conclusion. And this is where the emphasis of the passage is and where the main point is of chapter 24. If this happens, and if that happens, and if this happens, then now Moses is going to give you a ruling on a separate question, and this is it. Here's the main point in the emphasis. Then, her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her as a wife again. That's the point. That's where the focus of that passage is. And if you focus it in the other portions which are subordinate, you're going to come away, or you could come away, with the wrong conclusion. Let the conclusion be the conclusion. Now the reason that the former husband who sent her away to begin with is not allowed to take her back as a wife again is given here because she has been defiled. That's what the second marriage did. That's what the Scripture says. And going back to the first husband in the situation is an abomination to the Lord and you will bring sin on the land. That's the teaching that's emphasized in Deuteronomy 24. So the question is now, did Moses command or did he permit divorce? Now Jesus did say something about Moses commanding something from this passage. Which means that somewhere in Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4, there is a command that Moses gave. But the point is not in verse 1, as the Pharisees were arguing, but the point is rather in verse 4. There are two clear commands in verse 4. Both of them are the conclusion of the matter, the main point. Number one, the wife is commanded not to go back to her original husband if she is divorced and remarried to a second husband. That's one command. Can't do it. The second command is that the husband who divorces the wife is commanded to give her a certificate of divorce when he does send her away. Now the reason for that is it was a safeguard for the rights of the woman. In other words, if a man, out of the hardness of his heart, is going to divorce his wife, which God will permit... He's going to have to do it a particular way and give her a written certificate. You can't just divorce your wife like you would rid yourself of a piece of property. When it comes to the dowry that she brought into the marriage that her father scraped together and and saved in order to be able to provide for her in the event that you died or you couldn't care for her, She would have part of her parents' inheritance that would come then into the marriage. And when it comes to the issue of the bride price that was settled between you and her father, we're going to do this legally, we're going to do this rightfully, 
and you're not going to take advantage of your wife who is under Jewish law and society who at that time could not sue for a divorce and who did not really have legal rights that we take so for granted in modern society. And when you send her away, all of that is going to be taken into account and a writing legally is going to be given for her protection and for her provision. That's the other command. Now the point of Deuteronomy 24 was not to command divorce at all. It wasn't even to endorse divorce. From the beginning, it was not so. The point of Deuteronomy 24 was to regulate something that was already going on because the people's heart was so hard-hearted that it would not submit to the will of God on this matter. Because they were divorcing and they were compounding the evil of it, therefore Moses was going to fence that in. You will send her away, and this is the way it's going to happen. If that, when that happens, you're not going to just send her away like you've been doing. And if you do, you are never getting her back. See, the whole thing in Deuteronomy 24 was to make people really think very, very carefully about marriage to begin with and about the abuse that was going on because of the hardness of people's hearts. So the argument from Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 3 was not prescriptive, prescribing how something ought to be done. It was descriptive as what was already taking place. It's not what ought to be done, but rather was describing the scene of what was going on because of men's hardness. Verse 4 was the command that reigned it all in to protect the rights of the wife in the midst of it all. Are you all tracking with me so far? This is really important. Now we're going back to Matthew 19. It's on the basis of that, that in verse 9, the Lord gave his conclusion about the lawfulness. When it comes to lawfulness of divorce, Deuteronomy 24 is not really the passage to go to because that passage is not really commenting one way or another about the lawfulness or not of divorce and remarriage. That's not the point of the passage. It's not the intent of what the Spirit was doing with that passage. What it's doing is it's regulating a practice in society because people are so hard-hearted about it. You want to answer the question of lawfulness? Our Lord's going to give the ruling of it. He's going to go back to Genesis 1. He's going to go back to Genesis 2. He's going to tell you Moses permitted it, but from the beginning it was not so. And God hadn't changed his mind on that. The bottom line, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and remarries, commits adultery. So when Jesus was interacting with the Pharisees from Deuteronomy 24, they were focusing on two different points. That which was permitted was divorce, but that was taking place because of the hardness of hearts. But what was commanded 
was in the main point of the passage down in verse 4. While the Pharisees were focusing on verse 1 and attempting to nuance the meaning from it, that was not the prescriptive point, but the description of the times and the difference between Jesus' use of permitted and commanded versus the Pharisees happens to be at what point they were emphasizing the passage. And with all that now worked through, I want to make one more point from this passage this morning. And as I work through this, I want to leave out today, we're going to pick this up in the last message next week, Lord willing, I want to leave out today the exception clause. In Mark's gospel, he doesn't even give the exception. In Matthew, he covers divorce and remarriage twice, once in Matthew 5, once in Matthew 19. But for today, today only, we're going to leave out the exception clause. Okay, So you're going to have to hear it through that qualification. And the reason I want to leave out the exception clause is because we want to look at what is more generally the case. And you have to understand what is generally the case before you bring in an exception and wrestle through that particular exception. So what we need to find out is what is normal. Let's first of all, what is normal? What is God's will and spirit regarding marriage? And here's what is generally the case. Reading it without the exception clause, I'm going to read first of all from Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Going back to Matthew chapter 5, which we covered when we were there sometime maybe last year, I'll read this without the exception clause. Matthew 5 verse 32. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason causes her to commit adultery and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. I've left out the exception clause, right? For any reason, he says. Well, my husband, you don't know him. He's a sloth. He doesn't work. He's lazy, and he won't pay the bills. You can't divorce him and remarry. My husband, he, he abuses me emotionally and mentally. You can't divorce him and remarry. Whoever does that commits adultery. Now, I need to qualify this because I know how people hear sometimes. I want to be very sensitive. I'm not meaning to be harsh or negligent about a wife who's been emotionally or mentally abused. We cannot ignore that. We cannot ignore that. But divorce and remarriage is not an option. That's not me saying this. That's our Lord saying this, getting us into the framework of God himself. Jesus says, if you do, you would be an adulterer. For any reason... And we can come up with a lot of what we think of as justifiable reasons to divorce and remarry. As I mentioned, that the United States is very high in all of the countries right now on the divorce rate. And the church, 
I'm not sure there's a difference between the divorce rate of those in the church versus those outside of the church. And this is what needs to be reformed in our society. One of the things that needs to be reformed. And it starts today, right here. Now all this that Jesus is saying assumes that a divorced woman who remarries, and when she remarries, that second marriage is adultery and her husband is party to it. I say to you, whoever divorces a wife for any reason causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. You know what? The guy is party to that adultery. If you divorce your wife and she goes and remarries another man, the guy is party to her adultery. I know today there's innocent parties and divorces, and we even have now just a, what do they call that when two parties don't even have to consent to it? No fault, yeah? So only one person can do this, and the person just wakes up and, whoa, my spouse divorced. We're not dealing with that because that's not what the Scripture is dealing with here. These are so... But we just need to be very plain with what the Scripture is dealing with. If you divorce and marry another woman, if you're a man, it's adultery. Ladies, if, if you divorce and remarry, it's adultery. Men, if you divorce and your ex-spouse remarries, you're party to her adultery. And all of us, if you marry a divorced man or a woman, it's adultery. This is what is generally the case. And this is what Jesus is preaching. And Jesus is preaching this in an evangelistic setting. He comes and he says, I'm preaching my kingdom because I am the king. And in my kingdom, if you want to be a follower of me and be in my kingdom... These are the demands of my kingdom. This is the etiquette. This is the customs of the kingdom over which I reign. You can't live like that and do those things and be in my kingdom. Now, a common response that often comes, it's unfortunate that it often comes. I hope you're not entertaining this kind of thought in your mind right now, but it's, it's common And it goes something like this. Well, the standard that you're talking about, it's all right in the ideal world, but it's not workable. It's a very disturbing thing to reason with Christian people whose response is, there's something wrong with what you just taught because it's not workable. Therefore, it can't be scriptural. Folks, the Bible's response to that kind of response is just the opposite. Society isn't working. And what you're seeing in society is not workable. Look at the destruction on people's lives and on families and on the children in every aspect of society. It's not workable. 
Look at where the ripple effects have taken society with where we are today with identity crisis and questioning what marriage is and redefining it even at the Supreme Court level. You call that workable. The scriptural thing is the most workable thing under God's heaven because He is the one that declared it from the beginning, created it from the beginning, designed it from the beginning, and it is still so like it was in the beginning. That's what Jesus is saying. It's the commitment of the citizens of Christ's kingdom, like us, that makes it possible for a fallen society and a hard-hearted society to hear what God's expectations are and to submit ourselves to them. And God will bring beauty out of ashes. That's what he does. There's three applications I want to close with. Number one, if you find yourself in a position that you have violated the norms of Christ's kingdom, Christ desires that you simply confess it without any argument with God, without any pushback. Yes, but, what if? That's too idealistic. If you find yourself in a position where you violated these norms, Christ's desire for you is to simply confess it without argument. Believe in your heart that those are the sins that Christ died for just like all the others that we've committed. And that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our unrighteousness. And if you haven't been settled in your heart about this particular issue, maybe you're a divorcee, or maybe you've married a divorcee, or maybe some who might be hearing this message out there, you may be into that category, and you've never come to grips with what the Scripture really says about this, and you've kind of suppressed it or pushed it off. And now maybe you're coming under conviction that you have been wrong. All right. That's exactly the position that Jesus was preaching this message evangelistically to show the law of God and the will of God and in this fallen society to convict the hearts, to lead them to the grace of Jesus Christ. So just collapse right there on that point. Collapse on it, on the Lord Jesus. Fall upon him. Confess it to the Lord. Tell God you have no argument with him about it. You will never, ever recommend to anyone what you did because you now recognize it was wrong. And believe the Lord in his grace and mercy will set things right between you and God. And he will help you with all the complications that endure right through this life. And he will help you with those things. God is a forgiving and a loving God to those who confess their sins and repent of them and ask him to forgive them. And he will. And he will erase those sins as far as the east is from the west. He gives a new start, a new beginning. The second application is this. If you're considering or contemplating 
divorcing your spouse, banish the thought. Banish the thought right now. Repent of that sin. Confess that as wrong before God and banish the thought from your mind. Jesus' answer was, from the first question, it's never lawful. It's not been that way from the beginning. At the very best, at the very best, you may be permitted. But it's always in the context of hardness of heart that permission is granted. Can you accept that? And number three, I'm speaking to you young people now. Kids, young people, young adults, be very sober and careful and under subjection to your parental authority before you enter into any relationship that may eventuate into marriage. Make sure you have the blessings of God's given parents to you. That God, through His grace, has helped you. And this is one of the most difficult times that a parent walks with in a child because it's one of the most important decisions he or she will make. And I've said it before, that the courtship of my children is the most stressful part that I've ever had with my children. It's not because we've questioned their, their potential spouses. It's because of the gravity and the bigness and the importance of what they are about to commit to until death do them part. And we want to make sure that it is right in God's will for them with their spouse. And that's just a stressful time. Young people, you need to give credence to God's grace in your lives through those parents who so love you and want to help walk through that path with you that you open yourself up to them. Don't, don't just take all of your peers' opinions. So before you give yourself in any relationship that might conclude in marriage, make sure you've got the blessing of your godly parents and the people around you, that is the adult, mature people around you who see this relationship and all of the possibilities for a joy-filled marriage that will honor Christ. And don't give your heart to something without those things. Because marriage is for life. And what God has cemented together where two become one flesh, let no man separate. If we all take these things to heart, we can be a part of the reversal of the devastating trend in our society and also that's going right through the church of Jesus Christ. So I trust that we will work through these things. Next Lord's Day we'll cover hopefully finish the remainder of this passage. For today, we give today with what the Lord has given us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we 
pray for those who can hear it that they would hear. And that your spirit would open up the ears and the eyes and the, the hearts of your people. That they would be open and teachable and soft and pliable. That your spirit would convict them with the truth of the scripture. That from the beginning, marriage was cemented together by God. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. We pray, Father, that you would give us clarity to your will, that we would live in conformity to it. And we pray for our children that their marriages would be enduring and lasting and that you would bless them with godly, happy, joyful marriages that would then be the sphere in which happy, joyful, godly covenant children will be raised. That they can see that example, that they can live that example even to their children when that time comes. Lord, we pray for a great reversal of this in our society today and particularly within the church who should be the example to society with the truth and the beauty of the Word of God directing us, even in very difficult and challenging circumstances, trusting our God in all these things. So we pray that Christ would direct our attention toward Him and toward His Word and we might embrace him and love him as it is exhibited in the way we live our lives, the way we think. And so we pray that you would square our thinking up with yours. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.